play that cheer back for myself, you know, like more than one time. Uh, you know, anytime I feel down, I just go up to the soundboard and just, you know, turn up all the speakers and do a big loud cheer. But uh, maybe we'll do a cheer at the end of the message. Would that be all right? No. The cheers, uh, totally unnecessary. How are you all? Man, let me tell you, this is the, the committed group today because it is absolutely killer beautiful outside. And you got to love Jesus to come to church on a beautiful day. But, you know, the good news is, is that you can still enjoy uh, the beautiful day uh, even uh, after church. Uh, Matt Nall, our drummer, uh, really, really loves Jesus because over at the university they had their spring formal in Louisville that you got off of the Bell of Louisville at midnight and then went out to eat. Is that correct? And so what time did you get to bed? Got to bed at 4.30 in the morning and then comes in for sound check and run through at 9 a.m. And um, <coughs> I did happen to notice that uh, our normal complement of uh, CU students is down a little bit today. Uh, so gold stars for those of you that, uh, that both went to the spring formal. How's that for commitment? Our drummer out till 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I, I stayed out till 4.30 in the morning once. It was about 35 or 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, but not, uh, not, uh, not so much anymore. Well, all right. Um, we are on uh, week two. Are we ready to go? We got the, uh, got the recording rolling and uh, ready to go. Uh, we are on week two of uh, our uh, multi-week series on the kingdom of God. And uh, today I'm going to talk to you about the pictures of the kingdom of God uh, in the book of Isaiah. Pastor Adam started this message for us last week. If Don't worry, if you weren't here last week, you can go to vineyardcampbellsville.org and go to the audio archive, launch the sermon browser, and so you can catch up. You didn't know there might be homework involved if, you know, you missed something last week, but uh, Adam's message is available for you uh, last week, and, and he talked about the kingdom of God in uh, Exodus, which we'll We'll do a quick review. But why are we doing this? Why are we talking about the kingdom of God? You know, is it that we're just racking our brains for, you know, some kind of subject? And the answer is that the kingdom of God is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is his message. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He uh, taught about the kingdom of God. He demonstrated the kingdom of God. Uh, in fact, when Jesus proclaimed the good news, you know that word gospel, means good news. When he proclaimed the gospel, it wasn't just the gospel, period. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's not just that it's good news, and, and it is good news, but it's good news about God's kingdom, about God's government. Uh, John the Baptist, who came in front of the Lord Jesus, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He said, change your way of thinking because the government of God is breaking in on you right now. And then that, too, was the message of Jesus. And wouldn't you know, we find that the, uh, the very first followers of Jesus from uh, Acts chapter 1, they're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, all the way through to Acts 28. The very last verse in the book of Acts is also about the gospel of the uh, kingdom of God. And in the, maybe the last 60 to 70 years, especially within evangelicalism, we've shortened the gospel to mean two things, to mean forgiveness and going to heaven when you die. Now, believe me, that's good news, that you can be forgiven of your transgressions, both towards God and towards one another, and that you can go to heaven when you die. And that, that, those are both completely true, but that is a shortening of the gospel. The gospel is so much bigger than that. It's about what happens when Jesus, when the Father, when the Holy Spirit, when they break in and they bring their rule and their reign. 
See, this is, uh, this is the gospel that Jesus brought. And today, maybe the best news is there's more good news than perhaps what you've been led to, to believe in your commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, one time Adam preached a message on, it's a better deal than you expect, right? You know, it's like when you buy something and then you get more than you expected with what you bought. And you go, well, isn't that nice? They didn't have to do that. Well, you see, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Jesus um, assures us of our entry into heaven. But then we find out, hey, wait a minute, it's an even better deal than what we expect. Jesus is also going to provide a way for the way things that are done in heaven can break into our lives here and now. That's more good news. Um, now, why are we working in the Old Testament? Uh, the answer is, is simply this, that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi from the hill country in the northeast side of uh, Israel uh, was steeped in the Jewish scriptures. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament proclaimed. In fact, he even says that. He says, don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Instead, I've come to fulfill the law. And one of the things that I've begun to understand when Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law is it wasn't just that he was going to, quote, do everything right. He was saying, when you see me, Jesus was saying, when you encounter me, you are encountering the fullness of the Old Testament. Uh, a, a, a pastor in Redding, California named Bill Johnson, a pastor in Redding, California says this, Jesus is perfect theology. Would you like to know what it means? Would you like to know what it means to interpret the Old Testament? We can look at Jesus. And the message of the kingdom of God is replete throughout the Old Testament. From Genesis, where it's implied, to Exodus, where it's stated explicitly, all the way through to the prophets, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, a quick review from last week is we looked at the kingdom of God in the Exodus event. The kingdom of God in the Exodus event. N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian uh, in the Anglican Church uh, from over in the U.K., N.T. Wright says that the Exodus event, all of the things that go on with God delivering the people out of slavery in Egypt, that the Exodus event is the controlling metaphor of the entire Old Testament. When you read about King David, he will hearken back and talk about what God did in the Exodus event. When you read the Psalms, you'll find out that they are still celebrating hundreds, no wait, even thousands of years later, what God did in the Exodus event. And it's in the Exodus event that we get these explicit mentions of uh, the kingdom of God. Well, Adam taught us these things last week. Uh, who is God? The first three bullet points really taken together are who is God? He's the one who sees who hears and who cares. He's the one who becomes present in our situation so that he can fix things or make things right. Who's God? I see, I hear, I care, and because of this, I become present. I break into the situation in order to save my people. Now, that's not just Sunday school material. When we encounter that in uh, Exodus chapter 3, which is those first three bullet points come from Exodus 3, verses 7 through 15. It is a revelation of who God is. So here now, in a, on another continent, 21 centuries after Jesus, and maybe 33 or 34 centuries after the Exodus event, who is God? He sees you, he hears you, and he cares about you, and he's breaking into your situation to save his people. You see, it's not just a lesson about Jesus. It's not just a lesson about the Father or about the Holy Spirit. It's the revelation of who God is 
and, and how he wants to come alongside of you today. And so those are the first three bullet points. And when Adam talked about the, you know, the plagues uh, that were involved in Egypt and then uh, the final deliverance and uh, all of Israel who were formerly slaves, literally on one day slaves and on the next day free, on one day poor and on the next day they leave with the plunder of Egypt, you see that the arena of God's salvation is not the sweet by and by. The arena of God's salvation is the nasty now and now. And that's so important. Adam shared with us that, yes, there was battle that went on in the heavenlies that had spiritual significance in crazy, wiggy realms that we don't understand, but that the practical input of what God did meant freedom for slaves. And they weren't metaphorical slaves. They were what? They were actual slaves. It meant abundant provision for people who had for 400 years been the, uh, uh, the recipients of economic injustice, and in a single day, they go away with the plunder of all of Egypt. You see, that's not metaphorical plunder. That was actual plunder, real gold, real silver, real things like that. You see, and then God takes them out of Egypt, you know, with, with the plagues and with the, uh, uh, the plague of the firstborn being the last of those plagues. And then they begin to sing a song, which you would too, when you see the, the largest military power on the face of the earth at that time, the, the Egyptian army, when you see the soldiers washing up dead on the seashore. And, you know, why don't we have more worship songs about dead soldiers washing up on the seashore? But they broke into song. And they said, the Lord, my God, my strength, my song has now become my victory. And, that, and at the very end of that song, is the, it was Adam's starting point, was the verse in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, that says, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever terminology that you want, will reign forever and ever. It was at that moment that the people of Israel realized that he was not only the king of heaven, he was the king of earth, Right? And just a few chapters later, just one final note, maybe as an addendum to last week's message, then God explains his actions in Exodus 19. And he said, You saw how I swooped down on eagles' wings because you are my treasured possession. I brought you to myself so that I could make a kingdom of priests. Now, how many of you think that all the priests are in the Catholic or Orthodox Church or in the Anglican Church? No, look around. Go ahead and, you know, you know, humor the preacher man. Look around. Put your head on a swivel for a second. You are looking at a kingdom of priests because in the New Testament era, we are the Israel of God. And do you know what priests do? Priests do two things. This is primarily what priests do. Number one is they represent God to all the people. If the world is going to know what God is like, it's going to come through your priesthood. You represent what God is like to all of the people who are either alienated from or have no knowledge of him. And then they do a second thing, priests, and that is they represent the people to God. So when Dr. Ray, for example, uh, prayed for our mayor and our judge executive and uh, our uh, governor and our president, what we're doing is we are fulfilling the God-given mandate to stand in front of God as the priests of the kingdom of God and to intercede on behalf of a world that is alienated from him. And, you know, priests isn't the, isn't the only image that's used. New Testament uses ambassadors or reconcilers or things like that. But this is the message that we heard last week, is that the, the, the controlling metaphor of the Old Testament, when God breaks into somebody's situation, he breaks it in such a way 
that he sets them free. Yes, from sin, and yes, so we can go to heaven when we die, but there's good news. There's more to the good news. He broke in to set them free from whatever it was that afflicted them. And he set them free into abundant provision. So we can be set free. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, you know, well, you know, what is it that afflicts me? Well, we, you can fill in your own blanks there. People have, you know, varying degrees of addiction, you know, uh, to alcohol, to, uh, to sugar, uh, to nicotine, to prescription drugs, uh, to uh, gambling, to internet porn. What is it that has got you locked up so that you don't experience the freedom of God breaking into your situation? The good news is, as Adam preached it last week, is that God wants to and is fully capable of breaking into your situation to set you free. And so, the conclusion of the message last week is that God uh, will reign forever and ever because he wants to win for himself a people. You're the prize. You know, there's a very real sense in which, you know, that New Testament image of the person who sells everything to get the treasure that's in the field? You could turn that on its head and say, you are the treasure for which God sold everything to win for himself a treasure. Isn't that good? I think so. All right, well then let's move on because we're going to work our way over to the prophets. But from the Exodus event to the prophet Isaiah, who, was, uh, who prophesied probably in about the 7th century B.C., uh, there's, a, there's a period of at least 500 years, depending on who you read, it might be as much as 700 years. And during that time, there was a long slow decline that happened in the people of Israel. They went from their God kicking butt and taking names over the Egyptian army. They went from that to one bad king after another. Uh, Finally, in 586 B.C., uh, one of the things that happened was the Babylonian Empire came and totally sacked Jerusalem and destroyed their their central place of worship. Now, these things, these two alone, would have been just absolutely faith-breaking because they had seen in their history God work on their behalf, and now they had gone from being the head back to being the tail. And so as a result, they find themselves in defeat, in captivity, in disillusionment, in like just total despair. And it is the prophets that keep the message of the kingdom of God alive. Now, you might think it would be really great to to be around a prophet, but a prophet had particularly two jobs. Number one was to comfort the afflicted. Well, I'm all for that, right? But number two was to, to afflict the comfortable. All right? That's what a prophet does. They, they comfort the afflicted. Cheer up, it's not as bad as you think. And then those that are comfortable, they'd say, you'd better be afraid because it's way worse than you think. And the prophets were the one who time and time and time again kept the, the image of the kingdom of God in front of their people. And Isaiah, in particular, is the IMAX prophet of the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't actually say that in the Bible because they didn't have IMAX back then. But if the, uh, if, the, um, if the image of the Exodus event is like your really cool 42-inch, you know, liquid plasma dis- display television, if that p- controlling metaphor of the Old Testament is like a big screen television, well then the image that Isaiah presents is an absolutely freaking IMAX image. It's like, whoa, you might pull a muscle in your neck just trying to take in the scope of the entire thing. And um, aren't you glad that we're not going to try to work through all 66 chapters of Isaiah? But uh, if you're taking notes, you may want to uh, just write down a few of the things that Isaiah 
prophesies. He says that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not simply going to break into a situation. He's going to come personally and set things right. Now, if you're a down-and-outer, you want God to come and set things right. But if you're an up-and-inner, you don't want God to come and set things right. That's why in the Old Testament view, the day of judgment was both a day of great rejoicing for those people that were disenfranchised, and a day of, oh, crap, for those that were, (laughs) sorry, I don't know any other way to say it, for those that were up and in and they were enfranchised, you you uh, you know, that was a day that was like, yikes. You see, Judgment Day is a day that is both great and terrible, and that's the way the prophets refer to it, is they refer to it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, this, uh, when Yahweh shows up, he's going to be a son of David. They had one and a half really good kings in the history of Israel. King David was a man after God's own heart, and for the first half of his life, David's son Solomon was a pretty good king. And they represented the high watermark of what it would be like to have a king on the earth. But when Yahweh shows up personally, he's going to be the son of David. And when he shows up, he's going to bring rivers of the Holy Spirit. In, in the Old Testament days, you got dribs and drabs of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would show up, amazing things would happen, and then the Holy Spirit would leave. But when, the, when, when God would come to earth personally, you're going to get whole rivers flowing, and you've got all that imagery that Jesus uses. It's all out of Isaiah. Isaiah depicts, for example, the entire desert springing to life, springing to life because the rivers of the presence of the Holy Spirit are gushing forth. It's like I lived in Texas for 10 years, and Texas is semi-arid, at least most of it, uh, after you get past East Texas. And, um, uh, and you go through the winter, and then when the spring rains come, blue bonnets break out all along the roadside, everywhere you go. And you go, wow, that is absolutely awesome. In Kentucky, you know, winter is relatively short, but the grass browns out a little bit. But what's happened over, our, you know, over uh, the, the hillsides of Kentucky just in the last four weeks? Everything just burst to life. The, you know, the trees, the dogwoods, the redwoods, the cottonwood trees, the burning bushes, you know, the green grass. It's just like this riot of color. Well, that's the way when God comes and sets things right. The Spirit doesn't come a little. It comes all over. It comes all over creation. comes all over us. And this view that Isaiah gives of God's salvation totally causes everything to break at the seams. His salvation means... Not just forgiveness, but also physical healing. Not just physical healing, but liberation from what oppresses us. I want to stop just a moment on this idea of shalom. It's the, it's the Hebrew word for peace. But uh, peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict in the Jewish idea. It means holistic well-being in every area. And the image that is used in Isaiah is of an Israeli citizen sitting under his own fig tree. He, he owns land and the land is fruitful. He's sitting in the shade of his own fig tree, drinking the finest Israeli wines, eating the finest Israeli cheeses, and watching his grandchildren play out in the sunshine. That's the shalom of God. How many of you all are up for that image? How many of you would like to enjoy the goodness of God so much that you could sit in the shade tree of your own place and watch your grandchildren play? There are people in this room that have experienced the shalom of God, exactly as Isaiah has said. It's not just 
that, they, that we get to go to heaven when we die. It's that there can be total, holistic well-being. As well as the fact there are images in Isaiah about resurrection that would just plain creep you out. They would absolutely freak you out. Resurrection sounds like a really nice word, but when you read the passage in Isaiah 26, it's whole cemeteries jumping to life at the voice of God. It's not just a resurrection. It's, the, it's kind of a really good Night of the Living Dead resurrection. It's, you know, it's, it's a resurrection where the saints and the holy ones of Israel come to life for joy at the sound of the Creator, right? And, and, uh, and I think you even shared that, didn't you? The, uh, the passage on Easter Sunday, the passage out of uh, Matthew, where even the holy ones in Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' crucifixion came to life. It was what? It was a foretaste of what Isaiah had prophesied. And then festivity. How many of you are up for parties? You see, the kingdom of God, yeah, the kingdom of God is a feast that lasts forever. And the images that we get in Isaiah, the images that we get that are presented by what happens when God shows up, make it all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation where it says there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. And I got to tell you, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, they got no clue how to do wedding receptions. It's, you got to go to an Irish Catholic wedding or a Polish Catholic wedding in Chicago, where I'm from, and you find people that celebrate wildly and grandparents dance on tables and there's this feast and, you know, the family goes into incredible debt, but who cares because we're celebrating a marriage feast. Anybody ever been to a really good reception? And then, then you go to one of our little receptions in some fellowship hall where everybody sits like this and you go, we're happy about somebody that got married? No, 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 no. We need a little ethnicity. We need some Lithuanian Catholics. We need some, you know, some Bulgarian Orthodox. We need to go to a Jewish wedding. We need to see that what God shows us in Isaiah and uh, chapter uh, 25 there is, uh, is just one of them, is a feast that will last forever. And those images, are, these are the images that inform Jesus, okay? These are the images that cause Jesus, when he tells parables, to say, look, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the what? Into the joy of your master. Okay? Not just, oh, you get a reward or you get an attaboy or an girl. It's enter into the absolute celebratory joy. Okay? And it's, it's one of the reasons why, we, why our worship has a celebratory note. You see, you're going to sing and dance when the dead soldiers who were previously trying to kill you wash up on the shore. You see, when the kingdom is there, the song of the Lord breaks out. If the kingdom is not there, there's nothing worth singing about. That's pretty much what it comes down to. All right, so this is Isaiah. 66 chapters of it, and you know, there may be one or two you know, really smart biblical scholars saying, yeah, but there's a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah, or well, you know, there may have been a conglomeration and an editing of the book. Let me just tell you real quick where I weigh in on that in case you know, you're thinking that direction. I think that the same Holy Spirit that inspired uh, the first Isaiah to write something could have inspired a second Isaiah to write something. I also think it doesn't matter. I think that the same Holy Spirit that would have inspired a first Isaiah could have inspired him to keep on going and write the whole book. It doesn't matter one whit to me because the book has such incredible unity of purpose and of image that, you know, it, so what? Let's take it as the inspired word for us and, you know, not worry about that so much. Most of you were probably not worrying about it, but just on the off chance that there were one or two. All right, our text for today, now that we've done the grand sweep, are you exhausted yet? 
You are? Okay, let's go home then. Now, our text for today is going to come out of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, it's just uh, seven verses long, so it should only take about 45 more minutes to get through. Isaiah 9 is uh, a fairly famous passage. I'll be reading out of the New International Version, and it kind of runs like this. It says this, Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in a land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when they're dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Can you hear all of these Isaiah themes just being just all mixed into this one incredible passage? Uh, verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning and be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, I know we're like, you know, like halfway through what I'm talking about, but would, would you just come with me for about five seconds in front of the presence of God and let's ask him to refresh us to open our hearts to his word, okay? Lord, we thank you that our hearts can be uh, encouraged through worship, that we can be gladdened by seeing our friends and family. But we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open up our mind, open up our hearts, open up our will to your inspired Holy Spirit-drenched Word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's just take this kind of verse by verse, if it's all right, because there's more to the government of God. You got the IMAX version so far, but now let's break it down. Let's just take this one scene. Have, have you ever looked at a movie a second time and, and thought, well, the movie was pretty good, but my goodness, scene by scene, this thing is just so rich. You ever gone back? You know, it's one of the nice things about having DVD is that you can see it again. You say, man, this is really, really rich. Well, this, these seven verses are just amazing. And in verse one, it says, nevertheless... Those people who live in gloom are going to be encouraged, and the people who live in Zebulun and Naphtali in particular. This was a region of Israel way up north and a little bit to the east. Coincidentally, it's where Jesus started his ministry. Jesus of Nazareth, guess where Nazareth is? It's in this place, okay? And first of all, it's the hill country. Secondly, it's way far away from any major city. So let's put this together since we're here in Kentucky, right? Hill country, where country folk lived who were not sophisticated city folks. What are we talking about with Zebulun and Naphtali? Hillbillies. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about people that were the down and outers, that were looked down upon by the elite. And furthermore, this was an area in the time of Isaiah's prophecies 
that had already been overrun by pagan forces. The Assyrians had already conquered this area. And what a conquering army would do is they would begin to repopulate the area with their own people in hopes that their people would intermarry with the, with the existing residents and just, just begin to distill or dilute any of the um, uh, uh, purity or the fervor that was there, whether it was political or religious or ethnic or whatever it was. And so the people who lived in Zebulun and Naphtali were actually people that were looked down upon even by the people of Israel. Even by the people of Israel. And here's what verse 1 says. For those that were disenfranchised, that were looked down upon by their own, those people who were not the cool kids in class, no more gloom, but instead honor. And there's good news here because for people that were from the wrong side of the tracks, that's where God was going to make his residence. Aren't you glad? You see, it's not just about Zebulon and Naphtali. It's about us. Where does God want to make his residence? He wants to make it with the people that are down and out, the people that are not highly regarded. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, hey, y'all, you need to remember what life was like before you met Jesus. Not many wise, not many of noble birth, not many of you that were highly regarded. And God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's us, to shame the wise of the world, that's all those people that live in New York City. We're just going to hope that the audio never gets to a vineyard church in New York City. We're sorry if anybody listens, okay? But you see, the point is, is that if you think that you are in a place of being down and out, if you are in a place of gloom, if you're in a place where you think your life doesn't count, where you have no significance, part of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that's exactly where God wants to make his residence. He wants to make it in me and in you, even in the midst of our troubles. Whatever it is that you think is highly prized in society, wealth, notoriety, significance, uh, uh, big family, whatever it is, whatever you think is highly prized, God wants to go to the place that is not highly prized and make his residence there. I think that's a good deal. Because believe me, I you know, was one screwed up puppy and God came to make his residence in me. Who would have thought? Okay? Verse 2, it says that a people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those who live in the land of the shadow of death, or another translation says a land dark as death, a light has dawned. And at first that sounds like you know, really good news, right? You know, dark, light, it's all good. But let's, let's just try to make this as real as we can. Have you ever been in a really dark room, and then somebody comes in and turns on the light? What's your initial reaction? You see, here's the deal. When Adam shared last week about the conflict that went on in the book of Exodus as the kingdom came, the kingdom always brings conflict. If we live in darkness, the light breaking in even bothers the people who are being saved. Isn't that true? Imagine, uh, you know, a... Um, uh, a hostage in a dungeon where there's been no natural light for months and months and months. Do you think that, you know, that hostage's eyes and lifestyle have begun to adjust to the darkness? And when the light breaks in, even the ones being rescued at first go, no, no, no. This is really true. And in my life, here's what I've found. And, I, and I'll talk about me because I don't want to offend you guys. In my life, I've found that I've made accommodations to the darkness. I've learned how to navigate the darkness. 
in the room, if the, if, the, if the room is dark, if I get to know where the furniture is placed pretty well, I usually don't stub my toe. And so for me, the natural solution is this. Learn your way around in the darkness so you don't hurt yourself so bad. And the solution is rarely, I wish somebody would turn on the light. And when the light is turned on, even though I'm the one that's going to be liberated, I react against it. And so you see, this passage we're going to get to is about that the government kingdom, the government is on his shoulders. And you see, when the government of God comes into our life, at first we begin to think, I'm not sure I really want this. I mean, going to heaven when I die sounds pretty good. Forgiveness sounds pretty good. But what if the government of God begins to challenge my notions about generosity? What if the government of God begins to challenge my notions about what family is? What if the government of God challenges my notions about sexuality? What if the government of God challenges my notions about how to live in community? What if the government of God comes smack up against the fact that I've learned how to do pretty well in the darkness? It's only good news after you adjust to the light. And so someone comes along and says, look... I, I love you, I care about you, and the truth is, is that you're strung out on prescription pain pills, or you're, or, you know, you're, you're in bondage to gambling, you can't give it up. Or someone says, you know, your sexual lifestyle is against God's best for you. In any one of those areas, plus a hundred more, the kingdom of God not only runs counter to the kingdom of this age, the kingdom of God runs counter to the kingdom of Ray. But just me, not you guys. The truth is, is that every single one of us have made accommodations to the darkness. And when the light dawns in, we can have a choice to accept his government or to reject his government. I'm not talking about going to heaven when you die. I'm talking about the fact that the good news is bigger than we think. The good news is bigger than we think. If you want to settle for forgiveness and go into heaven, well, knock yourself out. But the good news is bigger. But as the good news enlarges... We have to make a choice as to whether or not we will accept his government in our lives, okay? So the, the, the kingdom brings conflict. There's just no other way to say it. If we begin to embrace the gospel of the kingdom of God, we must embrace the conflict that comes with it. I mean, I grew up all my life as a conservative Republican, and I've begun to find out that conservative Republican values are not the same as the kingdom of God. Don't worry, I haven't become one of those awful liberal Democrats because I know Christians who are liberal Democrats lifelong, and you know what they've discovered? That the values of uh, you know, liberal uh, politics and democratic values, they do not match the kingdom of God either. You know, I like the way Rick Warren says it. He says, I'm not left-wing, I'm not right-wing, I'm for the whole bird. Right? And, you know, we're safe when we're talking about politics because, you know, the body language in the room really just changed. But when we talk about our own personal accommodations with darkness, then we're not quite on a safer ground. Just this week, I've, I've seen really distressing examples in people's lives of where they've said, well, you know, I, this is the way I manage my life, and, you know, so be it. I know it's wrong, comma, but I don't care. And, and literally, people have verbalized that sometimes. Let's, uh, it's still good news, okay? It's still good news. The light is breaking in. Um, verse 3, 
Here's the results of receiving the government of God. You've enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people with a harvest, as men rejoice when they're dividing the plunder. You see, on the other side of conflict, on the other side of the inbreaking, is joy. On the other side is the Irish Catholic wedding that, where we get to dance on the tables. It's, there is joy for those who will embrace the government of God. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Look at the two images that are in this verse. There's an image of harvest, and there's an image of um, dividing the spoils. Isn't it, isn't it good? Uh, I'm a big, big uh, sports fan, uh, like baseball the most, but the NFL probably provides higher moments of excitement. And you see what happens every year when somebody wins the Super Bowl and they, they push all of that confetti up into the air. We've got to get us one of those machines that just shoots confetti into the air so it'll rain, well, you know, 12-foot ceiling, probably not going to do it. But here's the deal. It's, it's like, you know, there's this celebration because... Everything that you hope for is coming to pass. It's wonderful. A, a harvest that is abundant. Have you ever seen any of the movies? One of my favorite, yes, I'm this much of a girly man. It's A, a Walk in the Clouds, an old Keanu Reeves movie. Yeah, I like Keanu Reeves too. Uh, where they harvest the grapes and then they take all of the, the young women and they put them in this ceremonial vat and they all crush the grapes. But it's not just that they crush the grapes. Everybody around them is singing and as they begin to crush the grapes, they start picking them up and throwing them at each other. And, you know, they're just getting this unholy mess that you wouldn't believe but how why would you waste grapes like that and the answer is is that the harvest is so abundant that you can revel in what you have that's the image that we're getting here that's the image that we're getting in uh, in verse 3 is that if we'll embrace the conflict that the kingdom of God brings into our lives if we'll accept the government of God there's going to be so much spoil so much plunder that all of this is for ourselves. Israel plundered Egypt in a single day. See, part of it might be, uh, can I get into this much trouble? Part of it might be that if our finances are not in order and the government of God comes and says, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, it's the measure that you use that will be measured back to you. And, you know, the best way to break off the power of, of greed is to start giving your stuff away. And you go, anything but that. You know, I'm philosophically against greed, but don't ask me to write the check, right? But if we'll actually embrace that, all of a sudden, we start to give away. We, we, give, we give away in, in, in areas small and large. Uh, he, I, I know a guy that he's made this a discipline so that every day he can remember the poor. Every time he gets change back from a dollar, he puts it in whatever it is right there at the register where they are, uh, 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 you know, earning money. It could be the Pregnancy Support Center. It could be the Ronald McDonald House. How many of you guys know that if you take your change and you put it in a big jar by the bedside every night before you go to bed, in the course of a year, you'll save several hundred dollars? Anybody ever know that? Well, why not, every time you get change, give it to the poor? Just like that. And use it as an exercise to pray for the poor. Just so that generosity begins to be built into our lifestyle. And when that happens, what happens in us is that there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a harvest of right relationships if we, if we embrace the government of God in relationships. There's going to be a harvest of plenty if we embrace the government of God with respect to uh, financial provision and in every area that you can possibly imagine. All right, verses five and, uh, 4 and 5, let's take these together. It says this, For as in the day of Midian's defeat... You've shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor 
every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. I love that last phrase. The instruments of oppression become fuel for a fire by which you might warm yourself. It actually becomes the fuel in which you can burn. The very beginning of verse 4 says, In the day of Midian's defeat. Well, who's Midian and why do we care? You can look it up later. It's out of uh, Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. It's the story of Gideon. It's the story where God took one guy who was threshing a little bit, tiny bit of wheat down in the bottom of an, of an olive press so that nobody would see him or steal his wheat. And God took one meek, mousy little guy and used him to deliver all of Israel from a foreign oppressor that was known as the land of Midian. Okay, And, you know, the story is amazing, Judges 6 through 8. Gideon assembled 32,000 Jewish warriors... And then on the first day, he sent 22,000 of them home because he said, anybody here afraid of going into battle? And, well, that would have been me right there. He said, well, if you're afraid, you go on home. We don't need you. That left him with 12,000. Then he marched them till their feet dropped, and then that that took them down to 3,000. And then when he finally gave them water, he said, anybody, well, he didn't say it. He observed anybody that put their spear or their sword down in order to drink the water, he said, we don't need you. And with 300 people... Through the power of God, Gideon accomplished deliverance for Israel. And that's the image that we're getting here in verses 4 and 5. And that is that uh, you, you don't have to live very long to realize that the race doesn't always go to the swift and that the, the battle doesn't always go to the mighty, but it's God who determines outcomes. And that me plus God equals a majority in any situation. So what situation are you facing? Difficulty with finances. Me plus God's government in my life will make a majority in that situation. Relational problems. You can't get along with your kids or your kids and you can't get along with your your parents. Me plus the government of God in my life is going to bring salvation into the here and now. I'm strung out, like we said, you know, on gambling or internet porn or on prescription pain pills. And you think, well, you know, I, I can manage it. You know, there's plenty of managing alcoholics out there in the world right now. And so we think, I'm managing it. I've got good news today. Rather than just trying to make it through, you plus God and the government of God can bring victory into your situation. And the very things, verse, verse, five, or, yeah, verse 5 there, the very things that used to oppress you become fuel for the fire. Now, I'm going to take one little liberty here. The very things that used to oppress you become fuel for the fire. How many of you would like to bring freedom to people who are just like you? Whatever it is that previously beset you. I had a problem with anger management. I had a problem with uh, gambling. I don't know why I keep going back to gambling today so much. Whatever the problem is, do you know, here's what Bill Johnson, this guy in the church in Reading says, the enemy always attacks you at the point of your destiny. So whatever it is that is the greatest difficulty for you might actually be an indicator of the place that God wants to use you the most. And it takes you plus the government of God, the government, discipline, yoke, discipleship, whatever it is that, you know, that formerly beat you down might actually be the place of your greatest testimony and the place where you can, you can help other people. 
I mean, I've known people who've lived incredibly uh, difficult lifestyles. They suffered physical, sexual, uh, uh, verbal abuse. And, you know, now they live in incredibly beautiful marriages and they help other people you know, come into to good marriages. I've, I've seen people that have had difficulty with their children, both as uh, little children and as teenagers and even as adults, and God has rescued them and now they can help other people to parent. Uh, I've seen that in the business world. I've seen it, you know, in the world of addictions. I've seen it so many places. Whatever difficulty you think that you're managing to keep underneath might actually be fuel for the fire that causes the kingdom of God to burn and to grow. Is that okay? Well, whether it is or not, it is the kingdom of God. Let's look at the uh, last couple of verses here in chapter, uh, in chapter 9, verses uh, 6 and 7. Y'all doing okay? It's not a downer. It's just that there's more to the good news than what you might have thought originally. All right? And then here's the, the absolute height of this. All right? It says, for, and that's like a therefore. It's, here's the reason. For to us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, upholding it and establishing it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I love the way these verses start out. A child is born, but to, to us a son is given. You know, how we see Jesus makes all the difference. Anybody remember the movie just a couple of years ago, Talladega Nights, with Ricky Bobby, and they're blessing the food there at the table, right? And they have this big theological discussion. They say, well, when you pray to Jesus, what Jesus do you see? And, you know, one guy says, I see the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. And somebody else says, no, no, I see a Jesus. He's got a beard. And they have this long theological discussion. The, the theology is whack. But they, it's, the important point is, is that how do you see Jesus? As gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the baby in the manger. Not exactly the most threatening or commanding presence that you could imagine. Or do you see a mature son who is given the reins of all that the father possesses? How do you see it? You see, the government of all things rests on the shoulder of Jesus. And this is so important for us to get. I've already mentioned it two or three times, but I don't mind repeating myself. Um, beyond his saving action comes his government, comes his kingdom. Once we've accepted the saving action of God, he calls to us to accept his kingdom. And, and here, here are just four quick ways, these four names that we get of Jesus. Wonderful Counselor. What do you need counsel in? Parenting, business, relationships, marriage, career, education. Dallas Willard, who's this incredibly uh, insightful writer, uh, he says, we need to understand every day that Jesus is the wisest person who has ever lived. He wasn't just wise about carpentry, because that was what he did in Nazareth, and he wasn't just wise about the Old Testament scriptures. He, in him is the source of all wisdom. So what is it that we need wisdom for? Relationships? Jesus has the answer for us. He is the wonderful counselor, but how many of us daily call out for the wisdom of Jesus in our families or in our business 
or in our, you know, in our educational world? How many of us call out for wisdom in handling you know, the, the, the everyday issues of life? Jesus is alive, and he's the wonderful counselor. And he's a mighty God, and we've seen this. We see this in the Exodus event. We've certainly seen it in the, the Midian account that was just there. Just as above, do we see Jesus as our provision and source for all of the power and authority that we need in life? Do we really see him as mighty to save? You know that praise and worship chorus? You know, mighty to save my God. Everybody like this, right? Or, is, or, or are they just pretty words? You know, you either sing theology or you sing lies. It's one or the other. Do we see him as mighty to save? And do we cry out to him or, you know, like little scaredy cat Ray, do we try to scurry around and manage things and keep it together? You know, one of, one of the things that I figured out in just 12 or 13 years of pastoring is that people will put their garbage into a bag, they'll put their garbage into a bag, they'll put their garbage into a bag, and then right before the bag is ready to burst, that's when they call up and they say, Pastor, I need a few minutes for you. And as soon as they walk in, they say, here's my bag, and that's exactly when the bottom drops out. Okay? The deal is, is he's mighty to save now if we will embrace his kingdom in our lives. He's also the everlasting father. And I love this because it's the story of my life. Actually, this has all been introduction just so I can tell you my life story. It says in Psalm 68 that God takes the solitary and he sets them into family. And that absolutely has been the story of my life is going from one degree of isolation and separation into more and more of a degree of family and acceptance that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Jesus is the everlasting source of fatherhood and identity and family. You know, if you really are, you know, dying for a sense of belonging and family, you know, the place to find it is in God's kingdom, not in church attendance. No, no, certainly not that. And certainly not in trying to win notoriety or significance so that people will kiss up to you. The way to find the everlasting father is to accept the government that's on his shoulders. And he's the prince of peace. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this this week. You know, there's a lot of people out there with honorary degrees, but this is no honorary degree that Jesus has. Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the commander of peace. He has peace that is resident within him and it is his delight to give it to you. We live in a world where there is an awful lot of fear. Just this week, here were some of the things that I thought about. Was Well, you can't turn on the news without you know, hearing about all of the economic problems you know, that have been going on you know, now for six months. You, know, you can only panic for so long. It's like if you fall off a cliff and you scream for a while, but you still haven't you know, hit bottom, and then you finally go, I'm still falling. Well, I think I'll scream a little while more. You know? There's no end to the fear that we can have about the economic situation. And if that's not enough, now we've got to worry about the swine flu that broke out in Mexico City and is making its way up to Atlanta and New York City. They just closed the stores or in the schools in New York City. And I didn't even know that swine could fly, but apparently they do. And these are the jokes, folks. Um, you know, you take your pick. You pay your money. You make your choices. There is no end to the things that we can be afraid of. You know, there's, you know uh, there was one guy that I know. He's still alive. He's a friend of mine. I'm not making this up. Every time he hears an emergency siren, 
he is immediately seized with fear that it is his own family member that is in need of the situation. He gets on his cell phone and begins to call his family members one after another to make sure that the siren is not for them. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has it to give. And the amazing thing is that if we are his kingdom ambassadors, if we're that nation of kings and priests, he gives it to us to give to other people. I know people that when they pray for someone else, that the the other person receiving the prayer, at the end of the prayer goes, wow, I just feel this sense of peace and the presence of God in the room. Because Jesus said, freely you've received what? Freely give. It's no honorary degree that he's the Prince of Peace. He's the source of peace in our lives. I know successful businessmen, men that have made millions of dollars that are still afraid of losing it all. Is there peace in having $10 million in the bank if you're afraid of losing it all? No. He's the Prince of Peace. And then get this as we finish up here. Verse 7, And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You see, it really is an everlasting kingdom. When Adam shared with us out of Exodus 15, verse 18, where it said that the Lord will reign forever and ever, it's not just that forever is a long time. Forever is a long time, and it's a deep time, and it's a wide time, and it's a vast time that just keeps getting better and better. C.S. Lewis said it this way, farther up and farther in, and you meet even more reality. You see, the increase of his government and of his peace is an increase that goes on worldwide from 12 frightened followers on Good Friday to billions around the earth. The government of God has been expanding. But not just in terms of geography, but 20 centuries later, the Prince of Peace is still the name above all names. It is, a, it is an established sociological and historical fact that Jesus Christ is by far the most recognized figure in all of history for every culture. So it's worldwide and it's through time. But more importantly than any sort of academic lesson is that the increase of his government and of his peace can keep on going in me. Do you know, he can, he can bring more order into my life. He can bring more peace into my life. I have walked with him these 37 years and he's still going deeper and deeper and deeper. And the honest truth is, I, I've got good news. It just keeps getting better and better and better. Maybe you've been frustrated with your faith and thought, well, they told me my sins were forgiven. They told me I could go to heaven. And you know what? Nothing else seems to be any different. I just want to tell you by my personal story that in walking with Jesus since uh, August of 1970, that as his government has worked in me more and more and more, the blessings and the benefits of his government keep getting better and better and better and better. That should be good news. Okay? I know a guy, another guy, who said, you know, I've been to school, I've got my doctorate, I already know the scriptures. And, you know, his view is, is that once you've been there and done that and bought the T-shirt, there's nothing more. And, you know, he's, you know, you know Ph.D., no offense to any academics in the room, Dr. Hertchie, Ph.D., piled higher and deeper, right? You know, if our, if our view has been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, now I know it, you're not a participating in the kingdom of God because the testimony of the Scriptures is of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be 
no end ever. All right. This is what Isaiah has to share, not only in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, but throughout the entire mind-blowing IMAX book of Isaiah. And you know what? It's a series here at the Vineyard on the Kingdom of God because there is even more. This is just the Old Testament antecedents. Not just. These things are still the Word of God. The, the Exodus event, the, the incredible prophecies in Isaiah. But you know what happens then? Is that after Isaiah, after 586, when there's this destruction of Jerusalem, there is just this incredible elongation of time. Expectations are not met. Hundreds of years, nothing happens. And the people of God begin to wonder how will God fill his, fulfill his promises? The people who have actually dared to hope begin to wonder when the fulfillment will come. I've got good news. One more bit of good news. If you're the kind of person who has dared to hope in the past and your hope hasn't been fulfilled, God is still in the business of breaking in. Because the people of Israel dared to hope in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and yet they were waiting for when he would actually show up and inaugurate the kingdom. You know, there are plenty of disillusioned Christians who said, been there, done that, I've tried it all. I, I'm actually afraid to hope anymore that God will break into my situation. You, here in this room, might be like that. You know, one of the dangers of growing old is cynicism and say, well, I just know how the world works now. I've got good news. You need to learn how the kingdom works. You need to learn how the kingdom works. And I want to invite you to come back next week. Pastor Adam is going to teach about the kingdom of God from the lips of the king himself, from Jesus Christ. And it's going to be amazing. You see, he's already in the business of setting people free. We had good ministry last week. You know, ministry doesn't have to stop from one week to the next. You know, maybe you were here last week and you, you might have even been afraid to receive ministry. There were real specific words about being set free from addictions and things like that. Maybe you're one of those people that has made accommodations, you know, to the darkness within you. Come on up, Adam. Um, but there's ministry opportunities for us today and there's good news ahead because we're going to learn about the kingdom of God next week from the lips of Jesus through Adam. Adam? Amen, Ray. That was so good, wasn't it, y'all? That was so good. Thanks, Jesus. If you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up.